Welcome to Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, where we hear from entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and financial experts on their views on today's world. In this edition, Callum Brewster speaks with Dr. Matthew Grimes, co-director of the Entrepreneurship Center at Cambridge Judge Business School, on why innovation should be coupled with humility and how entrepreneurship can bring about positive social change. Good morning, Matthew. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. It's a real pleasure. Now, Matthew, I've done some reading and background on yourself, and when I look at your career, your academia, and what you've been involved in, it is vast. It's really interesting, and I would struggle to summarize and explain actually your background and what you actually do. How would you introduce yourself, and how would you explain how you've got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So maybe it'll be helpful to if I kind of intersperse the narrative of my career along with my research interests as well, so you can get a sense of where my career has progressed, but how that feeds into the things that I'm interested in studying these days. So I spent my early career as an executive consultant working at this medium-sized firm that was based out of the Washington, D.C. area and recently acquired by Gartner. And so at that point, I was spending a lot of time with companies which were thinking about going through large-scale implementations of enterprise-wide IT systems. But in the interim, I was also spending some time volunteering at this organization called Ashoka, which was one of the early pioneers in this conversation around social entrepreneurship, which I would describe as market-based methods for trying to solve social and environmental problems in the world. And as I can recall, I was sitting in my office, which overlooked Pennsylvania Avenue at the time. That's the road that heads up to the White House there in D.C. And I was reflecting on my career and what I hope to achieve. And at that point, it really did feel like an either or choice, which as a side point, I now think this tendency in my thinking at the time and really this thinking that I think characterizes so many organizations can be detrimental to making sound choices. But for me, that either or choice at the time was did I want to continue working in a consulting firm, helping organizations to address their day-to-day challenges, or did I want to return to academia where I hoped I could begin to draw from some of my experiences at places like Ashoka and begin to shape some of the conversations around the broader purposes of organizations? What is the role and responsibility of firms to society? And it's interesting, as I went back to grad school to study this question, first at Oxford University, and then I went back to Vanderbilt University in the United States. And I started realizing that organizations are also prone to thinking about their decisions in these either-or frameworks and choices. So either we're going to focus on our bottom line and serve shareholders, or alternatively, we're going to be a mission-driven organization. But in doing so, that's going to require some compromises to our profitability. And this is the assumptions that play through, I think, a lot of our decisions in organizations. And for me, these types of perceived tensions have always been really interesting to me and have served as a foundation for my research to date. So much of my work is focused on trying to expose these perceived tensions in organizations and questioning whether or not those tensions always require trade-offs. And then trying to look for instances of organizations who have effectively looked at these tensions and tried to leverage the tension rather than either retreating from the tension, collapsing onto one versus the other. Just as a quick example, because I know we're getting abstract here, but as a quick example, and to bring us full circle, many of the organizations these days that have 
embrace this label of social entrepreneur or social innovator. These are organizations that have also embraced this notion of double or triple bottom line thinking that that running a successful organization in today's world isn't necessarily just about making an either or choice with regard to the role of business in society, but also embracing this both and philosophy that we can pursue both profitability and positive social change simultaneously. And I guess that brings us to today where I'm a faculty member at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge and where I also serve as academic director for the Entrepreneurship Center here. And so here at Cambridge, I'm continuing to leverage this platform to try to examine the various tensions and challenges that entrepreneurs and organizations face, and particularly as it relates to their impact on society. So that's how I'd summarize the short and long of it. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, your summary actually probably resonates with many of our listeners because it is a topic that is so vast. So in my own profession, there's lots of discussions around about being environmentally, socially responsible in the way you invest clients money today. Our own global chief executive was at IMF in New York recently and the topic was all around about sustainability. And every time we switch on the television and the news, there's something that relates to that sort of topic. What do you believe positive social change is really about? Because I think it's so vast, it's hard to actually for organizations, entrepreneurs, to actually grasp really where they should focus. Completely. So that resonates with me as well as I've interacted with a number of different business leaders over the last several years about that very topic of sustainability. One of the things that I've been struck by is just how frequently people just assume that when they use this word sustainability, they think others will know what they're talking about. But it's interesting when you actually get these leaders into the same room and have them actually reflect on and discuss their assumptions about what sustainability means to them and how to go about achieving that sustainability, you really start to see their surprise when they recognize just how different our assumptions are, right? So, and I think compounding the challenge is the fact that our understanding of positive social change has to be dynamic to some extent, right? Because the social and environmental problems that we face in the world are always changing. And so, if the intention is to actually achieve some kind of real impact, I think we actually have to move the goalpost every once in a while and sometimes even redefine the goals themselves. And this gets to the heart, I think, of another tension that organizations are facing around this conversation, which is the fact that on the one hand, we need to have some degree of clarity about our goals and we also need to have some degree of stability in our goals so that we can actually begin to develop competencies and capabilities around achieving environmental sustainability, for example. But on the other hand, as I noted earlier, in order to have real impact in the world, our goals need to be adaptive and responsive, not only to the dynamic situations that we find ourselves in, but also to the fact that we're learning, right? We're learning as we go out into the world, we act and we get feedback. So the problem changes, our understanding of the problem changes. And so to some extent, our goals associated with things like sustainability also need to be changing. But again, that creates this real tension because how do you continuously update your goals if in the process of doing that, you're really making it impossible for your teams to put in enough time executing on any given set of goals? But I I think you asked a rather straightforward question initially, which was how should we 
think about social change. And I've given you this long-winded answer about how there's a lot of opinions on the matter and how the target is shifting over time. But I guess, although I recognize this complexity, I want to hope that there's actually a way forward here. One possibility, the Nobel Prize winning economist, his name is Amartya Sen, he wrote this book a while back called Development as Freedom. And in this book, he proposes in this and other writings of his that the importance of thinking more holistically at the human conditions beyond these measures of like GDP and traditional measures of economic growth that we associate with social change and social impact in order to understand positive changes in people's lives as well as the impact of different interventions on those people's lives. And so he specifically suggests that poverty is this multidimensional thing and that humans have various constraints with regard to their freedoms, their ability to choose. He describes this notion of freedom as the ability to choose the life you most wish to live. And I think this approach appreciates the complexity that we were describing that's involved in the sustainability conversation, the social value, social impact conversation, but it also recognizes the need that we have to begin to compare across individuals and to begin to track and make sense of where we're actually having some real impact. And so that's as I've interacted with executives across the number of years about this topic of how do we actually begin to not only conceptualize this topic, but begin to actually measure the impact that we're having in the world. It's incredibly complex, but at the same time, I do think there are some frameworks out there that can begin to help us make progress in meaningful ways. What I see when I speak to entrepreneurs, I don't believe any entrepreneur starts something without positive intent to improve society in some shape or form. My local town in Scotland is Dunfermline from Andrew Carnegie, who, well, if you read about Andrew Carnegie, ultimately his intent was to do some good and to also give all his wealth back throughout his life. But when I see entrepreneurs today, we use the terms disruptive a lot, social impact, But then they have challenges from investors who are looking at a different measurement of success and indeed policymakers as well. Do you think in some ways where we're trying to disrupt and go through really what many would describe as a revolution right now, we're at that real transition phase where we're using historic measurements of success and haven't redefined what new success requires for the future, which makes it difficult for entrepreneurs to actually maybe get initiatives and ideas to market? Do you see that conflict? Yeah, absolutely. I think the historic measures that we've tended to rely on just are making it really difficult to think about measuring impact and change in today's world. And I think a lot of the problem is the fact that we're operating in systems and so much of our thinking around the prior measurement was based on our assumption that was relying very heavily on our tendency toward linear thinking. And so I think it's really crucial to begin to think about the complex systems within which we're interacting and our measures and our ways of capturing and evaluating real impact have to appreciate the embeddedness of our ventures and our interventions and the interdependencies between various systems in order to really capture impact in the world. Where do you see success right now? Where do you see it working as you would define? Is there particular geographies in the world that are accelerating and capturing that new way of working, that way, new way of thinking, and they're creating the environment to allow that quicker, more efficiently, right about that social change? Where do you see the success stories right now? 
This is a really important topic, and I think one of the things that we've been thinking about here at Cambridge is trying to capture what does it mean to have a healthy entrepreneurial ecosystem rather than we have a lot of measures of what it means to there's a lot of organizations out there trying to measure innovation entrepreneurial ecosystems both in terms of gdp and job growth but i think that we overlook perhaps one of the most interesting and positive effects that entrepreneurship has on regions which is what it does for regions culturally and socially you know when entrepreneurs are out there experimenting with new ideas and new ways of doing things. I think this adds the real vibrancy to a region. You attract talent and artists, and then this creates this virtuous cycle because larger businesses also want to be near to where the talent is and where there's some possibility for attractive acquisitions. And I think, as with anything, if we over-focus on entrepreneurship and we fail to consider the potential downsides, this can also be detrimental. You mentioned the term disruptive earlier. Some of our greatest innovations are also our most disruptive innovations. So the 20th century economist Joseph Schumpeter, he rightfully referred to these moments as moments of creative destruction where old models of production, distribution, and consumption give way to new forms. And I think this process seems to be repeating itself more frequently and it's creating this tumultuous environment. And I think this is in part why the conversation of social innovation and social entrepreneurship has risen to the fore because... I think it serves as an attempt to try to correct some of the perceived inefficiencies and lack of innovation that I think many associate with traditional charity sector, while also trying to correct for some of the perceived irresponsibilities that many associate with traditional for-profit companies. So whether or not these companies actually do improve upon types of organizations is an empirical question. I think so that's where a lot of our research is focused right now here in Cambridge is looking at what's happening both in the Cambridge cluster here at Silicon Fen, but also comparing that. So I have a PhD student who's just recently gone into an Inuit village in northern Canada in the Arctic regions and where they're introducing entrepreneurship into this region and they're trying to build out accelerator programs, some of the same things that we see in London and Cambridge here, and they're introducing it into these very isolated regions. And one of the questions that we're trying to understand is not only how do you build out these ecosystems in a way that helps these regions to grow and sustain, but also what does it mean? It's one thing to go in and apply this kind of, how do we apply what's working in Cambridge elsewhere in the world, but it's another to take stock of the assets and resources that these places have and to build out entrepreneurship in a way that is very responsive to the local cultures and demands and needs of these regions. And so we're trying to take very seriously, what does it mean for entrepreneurship to serve as a positive source in regions and enable them to, in such a way that enables the greatest social impact and change in the world. Coming back to that, so even this morning on the radio, I was listening to SoftBank and investing in WeWork and the debt associated with that. And almost media were presenting that as a problem, as a bad thing. Obviously, through some of the social networks, Facebook, etc., around about data protection and the utilization of 
people's data and concerns over that. And even in London with Uber and the licensing and the employment entitlement of some of their drivers. But fundamentally for many entrepreneurs listening to this, and I've mentioned the word disruptive, is actually part of entrepreneurship and actually changing society is trial and error. It's failing, trying new things and seeing how it works. Do you see today that society is in some ways trying to suppress and put negativity against entrepreneurship or are we encouraging it? Because there are good and bad depending which lens you're looking through. Right. Yeah. Certainly the notion of fail fast and break things. I think we've come to a point in society where we're stepping back and we're beginning to question this idea. But right now, I think there's a tendency to look at some of these individuals like Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos or Adam Newman at WeWork and Travis Kalanick at Uber. And either we say, okay, well, that's a bad apple. Or we say that there's something about entrepreneurs and the personalities that drive people to take risk that is in some way conducive to these kinds of abuses of power. But I think that may miss some of the bigger issues because I do think that part of this is about incentives, right? On the one hand, we have these startup ecosystems that emphasize scale, right, over and above business fundamentals, right? So we challenge organizations to grow quickly without attention to profitability, bottom line, and it rewards storytellers but not necessarily systems of governance which are viewed as stifling. And and I think actually perhaps most egregiously, we've started to overcorrect for an earlier problem in startups by giving these kinds of celebrity founders these sort of super voting rights. So I think early on, the problem that we saw in this context was that VCs were too quick to get rid of founders thinking that the skill sets that were required to start a company were different than those that are required to run a larger company. And I think the startup industry was rightfully trying to correct for potential issues associated with prematurely removing these visionary leaders. But I think in doing so, we've moved to this system where many founders are issued these founders common stock, which in many cases it confers seven to 10 times the voting rights of other stockholders. And just as an example of this, Elizabeth Holmes had, I think, about 98% of the voting shares in Theranos. And that's despite having received nearly 700 million in VC funding. And so I think compounding this issue is the fact that Many of the board members that are sitting on these companies, they're worried about retaining their board positions, and so they fail to act responsibly as the go-between between the founders and other stakeholders. And so I think the lesson here is there's just too much control and too little oversight. But I think, too, that sometimes there's a lot of attention given to the founders, and we're not questioning just the process of innovation itself and the need for better governance around the process. You mentioned the fail fast and break things and is society reacting to that? And I think we're struggling right now at this moment in time because we recognize the real need and benefits of innovation, but we also are starting to recognize that how we govern and rein in the unintended consequences associated with new innovations is it's important, right? And I think this is particularly interesting because it starts to recognize that innovations often take on a life of their own 
beyond just the intentions of their founders, right? So you look at Mark Zuckerberg, right? He can assert early on that the intentions of Facebook are to serve as a platform for connecting and uniting the world. But despite these best intentions, we've seen how platforms like this can also serve at times to divide or polarize, right? So I think this dynamic of where inventions can seemingly take on a life of their own and result in unanticipated consequences. I mentioned, referenced earlier, this notions of the need for systems thinking, but I think this can all be traced back to really even to the early 19th century when technologies that we were inventing were, they were becoming more than just mere extensions of the human body, right? Because before that, basically our technologies were just extensions of our bodies, right? So like the shovel, for instance, right? But then we started building these technologies as systems, right? Where the components start to interact with each other. This is like, you think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Dr. Frankenstein was a medical doctor, right? He knew how each of the pieces of his monster worked, but it was difficult for him to predict how they would interact, right? And because of the hubris, the monster rose up and he killed him and his family, right? So it's this very quite ominous story that she was depicting of the nature of technologies to kind of take on a life of their own beyond the, the founder. And I think that that's a lesson for us today, right? I mean, that innovation, it has to be coupled with some degree of humility. And we have to recognize our need to create guardrails around this innovation process and around even ourselves as founders ensuring against our tendency towards hubris and abuses of power. And I think we can see that hubris in full display when we look at some of these examples that are cropping up in the news more recently. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from the past, but I also recognize, too, that the world is even more increasingly complex and more interdependent. And so a little bit of a humility, I think, is going to go a long way as we continue to push forward with more and more profound innovations into the future. Yeah, and Matthew, and you'll hear it as do I, that scenario, that story around about Frankenstein is not dissimilar to many discussions today where there's a nervousness around about robotics and actually the innovation that you referred to with an unseen consequence, there's that concern at some point where the technology itself will start talking to itself, creating an innovation, a conclusion, which is even having human interaction. And that is some way suppressing the innovation in itself. And is that something that you're speaking to organization and policymakers about on how you actually, and you use the term responsible innovation, are you seeing any themes coming through on how you have and create that responsible innovation where you take risk but you manage and control the fear that some people have today in relation it's just moving too quick? Yeah, great question. I think we need to recognize probably three key features about today's inventions. We need to recognize their exponentially increasing power and capabilities. So we're innovating new technologies that may lack our generalized intelligence, but they're far more capable than us at very specialized tasks. And we also need to recognize that there is this increasing accessibility and decentralization of the technologies, right? So these powerful capabilities they're now increasingly democratized and available to anyone. 
And then I think we'd also need to recognize the, the potential for these unintended or unanticipated consequences, which again is based in their a number of different factors, right? Because on the one hand, technologies are often built on or layered on prior technologies. Prior technologies from history are now serving as foundations for these new technologies, but we lack the specialty and support for those earlier technologies. And so we don't understand the layering interdependencies between these technologies because those technologies are interacting with other technologies or even with our social systems. And so this creates these kinds of complex webs of feedback and interaction that are difficult to predict. So even our best attempts to predict these outcomes oftentimes are met with unanticipated consequences. I think precisely because our models of doing business have focused on building up very specialized skill sets or professions, right? So we become very good at solving one thing, but we're very bad at seeing the periphery and understanding interdependencies and interconnections between our systems. And so I am starting to see there's a lot of really interesting conversations happening at places like Cambridge and elsewhere on these themes of responsible innovation, right? So how do we think not just about our intentions, right? Going out and founding a business that has a mission or a purpose to unite the world. But how do we actually govern our innovations and our innovative processes in ways that takes account of these interdependencies, these systems dynamics, and creates guardrails around the process so that we don't veer too far to one extreme or another in our attempts to introduce new inventions into the world. And so we're at very early stages. So even in my research on this, I've honestly been trying to find excellent cases of this. And I'm seeing a lot of conversation, but I've yet to see really strong examples of systems of governance that account for all of those issues that I noted earlier. And so if your listeners uh, have any examples, I would be very grateful to hear from them about some ways that organizations and regions and polities are trying to address these very consequential issues of our time. And actually, when you discuss that, what comes to mind, and it's a very sensitive issue right now, is the political systems that the globe operates within. Two-party system in the States when you were down on Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House and let's look at the UK just now, generally a two-party system and actually a system, a governance model that's hundreds of years old. Are you engaging, advising or are you finding governments are asking individuals like you how they need to evolve themselves to accommodate on how innovation is happening round about them? Is that something that's happening also? You're seeing that quite a lot. Governments embracing innovation and technology. So there's a number of really strong governments, the government of Estonia, the government in the UAE, that have invested a lot in technological innovation and made that a theme of their push towards revolutionizing the way that government is performed. And I think that certainly there are areas where government can learn from the private sector in terms of innovation. But I also think that there are ways that the private sector can learn from the state and the government. I mean, if you look at a lot of the most profound innovations of the last century or so, 
I think a lot of those originated in the public sector, right? And this is because of the kind of patient capital that is applied to these and the scope of the ambition behind and the willingness to take these really long-term risks that sometimes are difficult to sustain in the private sector. And so I do think there are complementarities that run in both directions. And this, I believe, is one of the areas of encouragement that I'm seeing more and more of are these public-private partnerships that are increasingly being developed as a way to appreciate the fact that our world is increasingly complex and that our tendency to polarize in our politics, but polarize even, you know, to create these either or choices between we're going to embrace a free market approach or we're going to embrace a top-down state-based system. I think what we're seeing more and more of are these varieties of capitalism where ultimately it's based around public-private partnerships and the ways that innovation can flow through those partnerships, leveraging the capabilities and competencies of each. Now, that's very difficult to sustain because we're speaking different languages and there are different incentives involved in these different sectors, but it also creates really promising avenues for aligning with the complexity of our time and leveraging, again, the different capabilities that originate in these sectors. And the word partnership is really relevant. I was having a conversation just last week where we were debating partnership and actually how traditional businesses are structured and thinking in a very different and more dynamic way to enable cross-pollination of ideas and views to stimulate that innovation. So that's a really relevant topic. Matthew, I could listen to you all day. There's so much. We must invite you back. But possibly just as we come to close, I'd maybe ask you, what themes do you see over the next 12 to 18 months? And People that are listening to this are either entrepreneurs or people that are involved or engaging with entrepreneurs. What themes do you see and what guidance would you give if anyone's thinking about how they develop their own business and thinking at this moment in time? Yeah, so I would say there's perhaps three themes that come to mind. I mean, the first is the fact that we are increasingly operating in these complex dynamics require, I think, a paradoxical mindset, right? And so what I mean by that is embracing this both-and approach to managing tensions and trade-offs in our organizations. I think when we look inside most of our organizations and the coalitions that form inside of organizations, we see that these camps are usually based in a tendency toward thinking about the world in terms of either-or trade-offs. And I think the most successful entrepreneurs and the most successful organizations are those that recognize that usually when there's a debate like that, both sides have something interesting to offer to the conversation. And so looking at this as not right versus wrong, but right and right, and looking at ways of leveraging the tension rather than collapsing underneath that tension is critically important. The second would be systems thinking. And so, again, this kind of need to understand our tendency toward a linear mindset, but recognizing that the world is complex and we need to be thinking about those interdependencies and interconnections. And the third theme is one of purpose. And I think that ultimately I'm seeing more and more organizations talking about the purpose behind their organizations. We're not just in the business of 
maximizing remunerations to our shareholders, but that's a means towards some greater end that motivates us, that motivates our stakeholders, and keeps people bought into the idea of why this organization should exist. And I think increasingly executives are recognizing the need that they have to just move beyond maximizing the bottom line and thinking about why is it that we're doing this in the first place. And I think that that's a really valuable conversation to be having increasingly in our organizations. And so the combination of paradoxical thinking, systems thinking, and an emphasis on purpose, I do think that those three themes, I'm seeing them increasingly of relevance to today's leaders and today's entrepreneurs. That actually brings us very nicely back to how we started the conversation, Matthew, when I asked you what is sustainability, what does it actually mean? And I think I'm sure you'll agree that purpose, the why question, is actually making it relevant to you, your market, your clients, your customers, so it's personalized, so it's not just a broad statement, a broad theme like sustainable or responsible. It's actually relevant and actually means something to that organization that differentiates itself in the market. I'm sure you would agree with that. I completely agree. Matthew, it's been a real pleasure. As I say, I wish we could talk an awful lot longer. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity again in the future. But I'd just like to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners for your time and your vast experience and knowledge. It's been really insightful. Thank you very much, Matthew. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Callum. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliasbear.com. Mm-hmm.